Now, as you're turning there, I think that the book of Ecclesiastes is one of the most relevant books in the Bible in terms of helping us understand living righteously in an unrighteous world, living fixed lives in a broken world, living with perspective in the midst of chaos. The book of Ecclesiastes is really a a compass that points the right direction, but doesn't ensure that we'll go that way. Now, just to refresh your minds, Ecclesiastes is in that category or that genre of scripture called the wisdom literature. These are the books that are in wisdom literature. Psalms, which uh, provides us as a manual for worshiping God. Proverbs, which provides us a manual of instructions regarding making wise and moral decisions. Job, which answers the mystery of theodicy. Theodicy is how how do we understand a righteous God who's in all power in a world that has evil. And then the Song of Solomon, which addresses the subject of passion and purity, romance and sex in the context of marriage. And then there's Ecclesiastes. It's a very intriguing book. I don't know if you got a chance to read it uh, per my admonition last week, just to read through it and see what's in there. If you did, you probably have a lot of questions and that's okay, that's, that is, that's job security for me. So it's a, it's a blistering book and an encouraging book. It's a convicting book and a counseling book. And let me just humble you to say that it was intended to be received and understood by students. This was written to youth. It was written as Solomon being an older, wiser man looking back at unwise years and the tragic decisions that he made and say, this is the way I went that was wrong. Please don't go this way as I did. Gives us orientation with the creation. How do we interact with this world that God has given us? It gives us understanding about pleasure and pain. And it actually should be an encouragement to you to say, as Solomon says, that to to experience the book of Ecclesiastes is to be able to say that this world is to be enjoyed by those who can give God glory for it. And when bad things happen, it makes us long for another world in which there will be no trials like this. It's painfully honest. It asks the ultimate question that can be asked that we're gonna begin addressing tonight. How can I find meaning in life? This is the second story. This is the top shelf. This is not 101. This is deep stuff, but it's intended for us to think through and to chew on like a cow does cud. It keeps coming over and over. You can't get it always at the the first listening or the first reading. So in the coming months, we're going to be studying the pages of Ecclesiastes, and I want to make you a promise. If you will continue to come, if you will continue to read, if you'll continue to listen, you're going to be given everything you know for a worldview that can make sense out of life, that can actually know how to live a fixed life in a broken world. Well, let's begin with uh, the treasures that are in the first 11 verses. Let me just read that to set it in our mind for us. Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. All is vanity. Vanity of vanities. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Also the sun rises and the sun sets, and hastening to its place it rises there again. 
blowing toward the south, then turning toward the north. The wind continues, swirling along, and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All the rivers flow into the sea, and yet the sea is not full. To the place where the river flow, rivers flow, there they flow again. They keep flowing. All, the, all things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. That which has been is that which will be. And that which has been done is that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one might say, see, see this? It is new. Already it has existed for ages, which were before us. There's no remembrance of earlier things and also of the latter things which will occur. There will be for them no remembrance among those who will come later still. Incredibly encouraging words, aren't they? <laughs> What's going on here? Well, he really starts at the beginning where he, he instructs us on the reality of the world in which we live. It's a graphic depiction. It doesn't pull any punches. If I could say it uh, as, as um, uh, generically and as, as restrictively as I can, I don't know what you rate the book of Ecclesiastes on a movie scale. It doesn't have anything uh, inappropriate in it, but it's not G. And what I mean by that is it takes parental guidance. It takes understanding to understand this book. The first three verses serve three purposes. Uh, first, we see they're introducing the author. Second, they set the tone and theme for the book. And third, they ask a question that the following 12 chapters will answer. Now, let's start by just looking at these first three verses just as, a, as the context for our introduction. Um, it's very interesting that, that the book starts, the words of Koheleth. You'll hear me using that word all the way through our series. Koheleth is the Hebrew word for preacher. It's the instructor. It's the one who's giving pearls of wisdom. And then he says something interesting. The son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, uh, th this, is, this is a book whose authorship is more debated than almost any other in the Old Testament. There are major views that we've talked a little bit about. Uh, I believe it was Solomon. I'll tell you why in a minute. Others think that it was uh, someone who was late, writing later uh, than Solomon, pretending to be Solomon uh, under a pseudonym. Uh, others think it was put together by a bunch of editors and it really doesn't have a co consistent author at all. Take it at face value though. Let me just tell you why this has to be Solomon. He says, words of the preacher, the instructor. We know for a fact that Solomon was an instructor. We have the book of Proverbs, right? We have the Song of Solomon. He was an instructor on many things. But there were a lot of other instructors in, in Israel. There were lots of Koheleths. But he said, then he says, the son of David. That gives us about a dozen choices. And then he says, king, but not just king. He says, king in Jerusalem. That's significant because there are a lot of kings. The, the, the monarchy divides uh, with Jeroboam uh, uh, taking the north and Rehoboam taking the south after Solomon. Solomon was the only one who was king over, the last one of only three, rather, who was king in Jerusalem over all Israel. That only has three options. Saul, it's not Saul. And it says that he's the son of David. 
So that limits it to David's sons. It seems to me it's pretty easily tagged as Solomon, since Solomon was the king in Jerusalem, and it makes sense. Now, just a little aside, when I was um, uh, doing my, uh, my, my doctoral um, oral exam uh, to get my, my final, my terminal degree, um, there were four guys in the room, and my dissertation was on the book of Ecclesiastes. And one of my instructors, who I love to this day, had some issues with Solomonic authorship. And uh, he asked me in the middle of this, the oral exam, he says, so you take Solomonic authorship. I have about 20 pages in there on, about Solomonic authorship. I said, yes, sir, I do. And he says, well, um, how then do you, do you explain that, you know, uh, Koheleth is using what appears to be 2nd century B.C. Hebrew, but Solomon was 10th century B.C. And I started in my best argument about, well, I really think that, you know, that uh, he's the wisest man in the world. You would expect him to use good Hebrew. And I gave him all my arguments. And then he says, yes, but when you take the, the hokma, which is the Hebrew word for wisdom, for wisdom, when you take the hokma semestic domain, and you begin tracing it through, the, and he began this thing, and then one of the other quizzers uh, says, now hang on, sir, you... You don't take Solomonic authorship. The exam was two hours, and they argued about it for about 40 minutes. And I have never been more delighted to watch an argument in my life. I was just, oh, good point, good point. It was so awesome, awesome, awesome. So I will always be thankful for understanding the dimensions of Solomonic authorship. Koheleth, we're going to come back to this word over and over and over. If you want to spell that, there's a lot of ways to spell it. Probably the most uh, uh, common way is Q-O-H-E-L-E-T-H, Koheleth. There's no Q-U on this, just Q-O, Koheleth. It's translated preacher, but it really means one who gathers instruction for the purpose of teaching meaningful lessons. He's a pedagogue. He, he's an instructor for, for wisdom. He's not just in, uh, uh, giving instruction for exams. He's giving instruction for life. The book of Ecclesiastes, by the way, while we call it Ecclesiastes, that's a, the, uh, you've heard of ecclesiology. That's the Greek word for the gathering, which we use for church. Um, and Ecclesiastes is the preacher talking to the gathering because the Septuagint uh, uses that word to talk about, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, uses that word to designate this book. Verse 2, you find the theme of the book. Vanity of vanities, says Koheleth, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now to understand this, you're going to have to grab this and it's going to have to carry you all the way through the 12 chapters of Ecclesiastes. It begins almost like fingers on a chalkboard. Okay, here's Koheleth's wisdom. I'm going to tell you about the meaning of life. Everything is vanity. Thanks, and I want to hear the rest of you, what you have to say too. Romans 8, verses 18 to 28, we'll come back to there in, in a few weeks, talks about the creation is subjected to Vanity to, to futility. It's the same idea. It's the same word translated back in the Septuagint as well. Paul told us that the whole creation is subject to what Solomon is telling us now, that all is vanity. Now, you've got to be careful here. I know the New International Version translate this, translates this word meaninglessness. It's not meaninglessness. You can't, can't say that everything, uh, nothing makes 
sense. Nothing makes meaning. Lots of things make meaning, have meaning, are even intuitive. You go see a newborn baby. There's meaning there. You understand the preciousness of life. So what does that mean that everything is vanity? Well, the word is, is interesting. As I've told you, it's H-E-B-E-L. You can transliterate that H-E-V-E-L. Hevel or Hebel in the Hebrew. It literally means vapor, air, steam, breath. The word is most commonly used metaphorically for things that are ephemeral, insubstantial, delusive, enigmatic, incomprehensible, superficial, inconsistent, contradictory, or unreliable. Something that is Havel cannot be grasped or controlled. The best way I like to think of it is it's like steam off a cup of coffee. It's like your breath on a cold day. It's there, it's real, you see it, and then it's gone. It's temporal. It doesn't last Maybe the best way is to translate that as fleeting or profitless. Fleetingness, fleetingness. Everything is fleeting. There's a hole in the cup of life. It always leaks. It's just fleeting. Even our best moments don't last forever. He's gonna come back to this saying, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What he's saying there is It's fleeting, it's fleeting. Everything is fleeting. Nothing stays still to give substantial meaning. Then, verse three poses the question that the rest of the book will unpack. The rest of this poem really exposes the answer. Can we really make sense out of life? What advantage does man have in all of his work. Now, don't think of going to work nine to five. Just, that's the toil of being alive. That's, that's the way Solomon uses work. Just the work of being alive. What advantage does man have in all his work? Which he does under the sun. And remember that term, under the sun, we're gonna repeat many times in the book of Ecclesiastes. It means outside the garden, this side of the garden, and this side of heaven. So it's in between the two paradises. Under the sun. It's life in a broken world. That's what under the sun means. So Solomon asks, can we really make sense out of life? What advantage is it to even be alive? Why does he use this word work? Why does he call life a work? Because it exposes the depressing and even unanswered riddle of life. Think about it. We work to make money and we use money for basically three things. What to eat, what to own, and what to do. Almost everything we use money for is for those that, oh, we just save it for doing those things later. What to eat, what to own, what to do. When you stop for long enough to think about it, you ask the same question that Solomon asks in verse three all the time. Well, what profit is there? I heard uh, a man on the news the other day, uh, the financial news network, and he was, he was saying there are two main problems with finances, he's a financial counselor, two main problems with finances. He says, it's people who don't have enough and people who have too much. And he said, the bigger problem always is with those who have too much because there's, there's no meaning in what they have anymore. It, we'll see this in, the, in chapter two. You can't buy anything that brings you ultimate meaning and satisfaction. There's nothing you can purchase and just put it on on the shelf at home and look at it and say, my life is complete. 
what to eat, what to own, what to possess. That's what we work for. That's what we use our money for. And yet none of those things brings us ultimate meaning and satisfaction. So he comes and says, listen to me. So what I want to do is show you three clues for making sense out of life. Solomon gives those to us beginning these first three. And the first is just going to summarize what we've just said. We have to listen to the preacher. We have to listen to the preacher. It's the context. This is who Solomon is. This is what he's going to tell us. Just for a moment, let's take a peek. Now, let me give you a little head start on what we're going to be doing. This was intended to be a sermon that was, that was preached or read in one sitting. So we're going to find ourselves constantly going to the conclusion to grab meaning in, in the, uh, as we break it down sermon by sermon or, or else we'll get stuck. We're, we're only looking at the piece of the puzzle and not getting the whole picture. So look over at the end in chapter 11, verse 9 for a moment. It's one of the most interesting verses in the Bible. It's a command to enjoy life. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood and follow the impulses of your heart, the desires of your eyes and know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body because youth or childhood and the prime of life are fleeting. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Just for a moment, what what Solomon is saying is, listen, it's great to be young. Enjoy life while you're young in ways that you can only enjoy enjoy life while you're young because those are the specific ways you're not going to be able to enjoy life so much when you get older. Uh, I like to tell college students, you have probably more disposable income now than you will when you get your, your real job. And they look at me like I'm from Mars. And then about a year into work, they go, dude, it's always dude. They always start with dude. Dude, you were right. And then it obviously climaxes in Solomon saying, listen, listen to me. As we said last week, we have two choices. Experience is the greatest teacher for life wisdom lessons. We can either use someone else's experience or we can experience it ourselves. And it's way better to use your brother's burnt hand who's touched the stove to find out that it's hot rather than your own, right? Let's just say that someone had his brother touch the stove when he was younger. And that's for another time. So Solomon says, listen to me. That comes really in just the simple uh, designation of Koheleth, the preacher. The question we have to ask is if Solomon is preaching to us in this book, are we willing to, able to sit in his pew? Are we going to listen? Secondly, and this is where it gets really interesting, if not a little depressing, and we have to make sure we keep the end in sight at the beginning. Learn from the creation. Learn from the creation. Now, what you're going to learn from the creation may surprise you. Solomon says, a generation goes and a generation comes, verse 4, but the earth remains forever. He turns to our experience, our understanding of the the creation to teach us a valuable lesson. What is the lesson? 
That creation is indifferent to our coming and going as man. Has, has anything in nature ever given you a standing ovation? Uh, this last week, at the end of the week, I, I had a very quick trip out north of San Francisco uh, to, to uh, speak at a, at a banquet and a conference. And I had an afternoon open. I studied, was finishing up my sermons in the morning. And in the afternoon, I, I drove about 45 minutes over to the northern groves of the Redwoods. Uh, I'd seen the southern, the Sequoia Grove, and I wanted to see the northern ones, the northern ones. So I went out there. It was an amazing day. In God's sweet providence, I just, God is so kind, and he's kind to me. It's, that's really surprising to me. And I, there's an hour and a half loop that I, that I, I walked in my dress clothes. Um, that's all I had. And uh, I was an hour and a half in, in that big, that three-mile loop and saw one other person. Uh, now, when I got back to the car, I said, beware of mountain lions, but I saw that after. That was okay. <laughs> but these mammoth trees, these trees you can drive a semi-truck through, just indescribably massive. The tallest tree in the world is in those groves. And, and they don't tell you which one it is, by the way. And they don't on purpose because they're afraid of vandalism. It's just, you know, the, the tallest tree in the, in the world is out there somewhere. Good luck, tiger. Well, I was walking around there, and I'm thinking, some of those trees uh, uh, predate the birth of Christ. That's how old they are. And just walking through that grove and seeing these trees and just being overwhelmed and thinking how many hundreds of thousands of people, maybe even be in the millions, have walked by those trees, and those trees have not given them the time of day. They come, they go, they catch on fire, they go out, they keep growing, it's amazing. No, none of those redwoods has ever given any person a standing ovation for coming to see them. They're indifferent. The creation is indifferent to us. Yet there's a, still a magnificent wonder and admiration and curiosity about the creation. It's the signature of God. How wondrous are thy works, O Lord. And even though this, the world is subject to vanity itself... It still grants us pleasure and knowledge if we understand it properly. To make his point, Solomon uses the commonly accepted categories of his day, earth, sun, wind, and water. Verse four, he says very, very clearly, the earth remains forever. We come and go, the earth just sticks around. He obviously does, he's using metaphorical language here. He doesn't mean the earth is eternal. There was a time when God, God brought it into creation, into existence at the creation. The earth is made of matter. I did some study on matter. Solomon didn't, well, I don't know that Solomon had this, this information. It seems he didn't. But uh, at the microscopic level, we can identify matter as mostly, you know this, space and energy. If you were to look at the nucleus of an atom and say it was the size of a pea, just a, a normal pea that you would have uh, uh, with your dinner, the orbit of the, the, the atom would actually be bigger than the Arrowhead Stadium. It's mostly space. It's mostly just air. And now you have a, a quirk and quark and quack theology and philosophy that's saying that we're not even sure that there's any matter, that it may all be energy. That's way above my pay grade to even understand. 
The point is, no matter how good a microscope we've ever gotten, no matter how good a telescope, that's just looking in, looking out, how, how vast space is. I was listening on the, on the radio about uh, the, the great desire to put a man on Mars, and I just keep thinking, why? I mean, I, I'd like to visit there and come back if I could go to sleep, and it would be, but it just, and it was almost all, guaranteed to be a suicide mission because of the radiation, and I think God is going, this is just for my glory, and it's rocks. There was never any life on it. It's pretty simple. Solomon's saying, though, you can look at a microscope, you can look at a, at, a, at a telescope, and you will never find at the other end of that lens the meaning of life. The earth is pretty much indifferent to you and me. It just keeps on doing its thing. The text says generation after generation. So he goes on in verse five and talks about the sun. Also, the sun rises and the sun sets. And hastening to its place, it rises there again. We're slammed face to face with a seemingly endless repetition of days. Time is absolutely indifferent and impersonal to us and it does not ask you if you want it to wait. Haven't you wished it would? I remember in, I was gonna say college, but let's just say in my school, because seminary worked this way too, that I didn't always have all my papers done like Noah, you know, three weeks ahead of time. You know, he's that guy. You remember that guy in class? Just give Noah all the hard time he wanted to. He's that guy who's done with stuff early. And don't think we admire you. I wasn't that guy. And I just remember one night, uh, it was uh, in seminary, and I had to, uh, this big paper due. And um, it was 5.30 in the morning. I hadn't slept. It was due probably at 9 o'clock, as I remember it. And you know, I'm trying to edit it and just, just thinking, you know, Lord, that day, remember that day when you stopped the earth from rotating? And wherever the sun was on, you know, Israel for that battle, the people on the other side got, got an extra dose of night. If you could do that again, right now, that'd be great. It's a silly illustration, but the point's pretty obvious, isn't it? Morning comes, evening comes, first day, second day, third day, fourth day of your life, and it keeps on doing it. Don't you feel this almost every Monday morning? Time just goes on and on and on. It's ultimately gonna put a tombstone on you and me. Unless the Lord returns during our lifetime, all of us will die. And the person who digs our grave is going to die. And the preacher who performs our funeral will die. And the family that we have is going to die. And their children will die. And on and on and on. From God's perspective, we all have an expiration date on our birth certificate. Solomon is saying... Consider the matter of the earth and the grinding effects of time with the sun, that's what it represents, time, and realize that they don't bring any personal meaning to man. Even if you have the best day of your life, it ends, and there's tomorrow. Even if you have the best week of your life, it ends, and then there's next week. Now, the converse of that is if you have the worst day of your life, there's tomorrow. 
And if you have the worst week of your life, there's next week. And if you have the worst life of your life, there's heaven with Jesus Christ. Then he goes on to wind. This is interesting. Verse six, blowing toward the south, then turning to the north, wind continues swirling along and on its circular courses, the wind returns. All of the earth's weather systems are a part of a giant heat exchange machine moved by the sun. The machine moves excess heat from the equator, spreads it more evenly around the globe. Sunshine at the equator heats the surface more than any other latitudes where the sun's energy is spread over a larger area. And that movement of that heat north and south is what causes wind. At the equator, the air above the surface gets hot, rises, flows to the tropics, leaving a permanent area of low pressure. And then when that's heated, it sinks. Then there's high pressure area above it. Then the wind is caused by the air flowing back and forth, up and down, back and forth with those, those high and low pressure systems. The sun-driven pattern of air circulation cells is repeated over and over and over. Didn't you feel it today? Did you feel that wind? And you, I just, I was thinking about this, this passage that, you know, the earth is just rocking back and forth on, on its axes, uh, its axis every, every uh, fall, every spring, spring. It's actually always moving. And it, uh, as it's doing that wobbling, God put the perfect wobble on our earth to give us our weather systems and the wind, the rain and the snow. What he's saying here, though, is this. You don't really have any control over the wind. Remember Jesus? He says the wind comes and the wind goes. And then he reminds us that's like the Holy Spirit. Just as you have no control over the wind, neither do you the Spirit of God. Point is, nobody can stop the wind. I was explaining to someone recently, they were asking about Kansas and living in the Midwest and what, what is it like and, and uh, why is, why, they were asking why is... Um, um, uh, wind chill factor is such a big deal in, in the Midwest. And I said, well, if you've ever been in wind in the winter, you know that wind chill matters a, a lot, right? That's the real feel is what we call it. Um, so there's a reason that the Wizard of Oz was set in Kansas with a tornado. This is a windy, windy place. Well, have any of you gone out and said, okay, today in all of my power and all of my wisdom, I am going to stop the wind, it's silly. It's ridiculous. That's the point Solomon's making. The wind just, it circulates. It happens. Seasons come, seasons go. And they're indifferent to you. If you're a summer person and you say, I'm going to hold on to summer for the whole year, I've got news for you. In a month, it's going to be cold. And you can call it summer all you want, but it will be winter. Then he goes in verse 7 to hydrology, to, to water. All the river system. This is just such an interesting and neat verse to me. It's something I used to think of as a kid, but I didn't even know how to ask it. All the rivers flow. They literally rush. They go into the ocean, into the sea. And yet, the ocean doesn't fill up. Now, we have scientific models to talk about the hydrological systems but imagine being in the ancient Near East and going, that's a lot of water going into the Mediterranean Sea. Or even, even better than that, how about this? In their context, you got the Jordan River that flows nonstop into the Dead Sea. And it doesn't fill up. 
Go home and ask your kids. Ask your five-year-old. So all the rivers flow into the ocean. Yeah. And they've been doing that for thousands of years, right? Yeah. Ask them, why isn't the ocean full and overflowing? See what they say. To the place where the rivers flow, they flow there again. Just doesn't stop. What's he saying here? Well, it's hydrology. It's the branch of science that studies the waters on the earth. In the hydrological cycle, water evaporates in the atmosphere and is redeposited onto the earth in the form of rain and snow. That precipitation feeds rivers, which flow into the ocean. Evaporation from the ocean forms clouds, which precipitate and fall on to the land. And the cycle repeats itself over and over and over again. And Solomon's point is, it never fills up. God's got it figured out. Lest you think that they were unsophisticated, and I don't have the time to do this tonight. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11 talk about this hydrological cycle that the, the waters flow and they evaporate and come and form clouds and rains on the earth. Ecclesiastes 1, 7 will do the same thing here. Uh, Job 36, 27 to 28 talks about that. Psalm 135, verse 7 does. Job 26, 8, probably the clearest understanding of the hydrological cycle. Job 28, 8 to 10. Job 38, God informed those who were writing the Bible of the hydrological cycle. It's really interesting. I just think of the perfect balance of this part of God's creation that the ocean never fills up even though thousands of rivers for thousands of years have constantly flowed into it. And I can't resist saying that our our environmentalist friends who think that the hydrological balance of this planet is going to somehow get off and you know Kansas is gonna be underwater someday, just need to read the Bible. It's not gonna overflow. The oceans are not gonna fill up. You have it on good faith that God is not gonna send another flood, right? So Solomon, Solomon rather begs us to make note and learn from the creation. So our perspective is not trapped in naturalism, which leads us to a final clue that we have, and that is to live above the novelty. Live above the mundane. Live above the novelty. Look at verse 8. All things are wearisome. Just let that marinate for a second. All things are wearisome. Everything ultimately makes you tired Man is not able to tell. The eye is not satisfied with the seeing, nor is the ear filled with hearing. What is he saying here? He turns back to man and his plight on this spinning rock in space. It's a minor note here in verse eight that gives, never really never finds resolution. Nothing gives satisfaction. And by satisfaction, that's meaning. Nothing on this planet in naturalism gives you meaning. People have searched, man has searched in religion, politics, science, education, and the arts, but he will never find meaning in and of itself in and on this planet without God. Just a little side note. All of us have what I call a trap door in my own life. You stand on it and and you fall through it. All of us have something in our life that we think if that could happen, 
I, I would be more satisfied and happier. If I could own that, I would be more satisfied and happier. If I could make more money, I would be more satisfied and happier. If I could have that meal, I would be more satisfied and happier. Go to that place, have that trip, you fill in the blank. That's a trap door. You could go and you would find a lot of fun. It would be a great experience. The problem is it doesn't last. The earth is cursed with temporality. And you and I are even cursed. We'll see this later in the, in, uh, in the book. You and I are cursed with the, the need to even sleep. If you had the greatest day of your life and you wanted to extend it for a couple of weeks, you're gonna have to sleep in between those experiences. For all man's ability, he cannot, here's the word, tell. In other words, he can't figure out meaning from seeking and observation, experience, senses, reason, and science all leave us empty-handed in the end. So he goes on to verse nine. That which has been is that which will be, and that which has been done is that which will, will, that which will be done. So there's nothing new under the sun. Trust me, our generation is gonna come up with a lot of new things, in quotation marks. And there's nothing new under the sun. Oh, there, we, have, we have the iPhone 6, 7, 8, 12, 15. It's gonna keep, they'll keep adding the numbers to it. And when you, your toaster oven is, is doing well. I, I remember a, a scientist at, um, uh, he's literally a rocket scientist at Grace Community Church uh, who got his first iPhone and he held it and he said, there's more technology in my hand than all of the computers put together that put a man on the moon. It's remarkable. Just think back. Can you imagine, even if you're younger, can you imagine telling your grandparents or their parents that one day you would have a phone with no, look at this, no wires, right? You can do the, the magician thing, no wires, that you could take, not anywhere in the room. Remember when we had cordless phones and that was amazing? Not only anywhere in the neighborhood or your city or your state or your country, in Belarus next week, you'll be able to call me on my phone. Please do. But you'll be able to call me on my phone. And you say, wow, there's something new all the time. There's nothing new. Has anyone's, I gotta be careful how I say this. I was gonna say, has anyone's iPhone ever brought them meaning? It might for a few minutes. It just doesn't last. Nothing new. And even with that which is new is just made of other stuff. Even when people make up things, you understand it's using the parts of other things. A unicorn, that's a horse with a horn. That's not nothing, anything new. So whatever creature that even comic book designers create, it's using parts of other stuff that we identify. Our generation will come up with nothing new that will beat our father's and grandfather's ideas about getting a handle on the meaning of life. New technology, sure. A better toaster, yes. A dryer that doesn't make your house sound, a washer rather that doesn't make your house sound like it's falling down, I want that one. <laughs> Verse 10. Is there anything of which one might say, see this? It's new. Already, it has existed for ages, which were before us. You're just reorganizing molecules that are already here. You understand that, right? We may be using them different, but does that help me? Does any technology, does any invention, does any convenience bring us greater meaning in life? 
Now be careful because you might say, well, no. Here's the problem. Vanity of vanities. They do for a moment. It just doesn't last. Wait till we get into Ecclesiastes 2 with Solomon's great experiment with pleasure. And he basically says, I tried every category of pleasure available to me. And in the end, it was all Havel. It's vanity. It's the ride always comes to an end. Verse 11. There's no remembrance of earlier things. Former ages, former things, and also the latter things, which will occur later, things that are going to be ahead of us. There will be for them no remembrance, and among those who will come still later. What's he talking about here? He's saying, you're going to come, and you're going to go. One of the lessons that he's going to tell us over and over in Ecclesiastes, he says, this is one of the major plights of, of being alive is you work hard. Some people work hard and get a, get a good, good uh, living, a good, good uh, stockpile, a good war chest of, min- of money, of finances, of stuff. You're gonna work hard and you're gonna give it to someone else who will either do this or they'll give it to someone else who will just not appreciate it. You cannot, what? Take it with you. One of the lessons we're gonna learn about resources in the book of Ecclesiastes is this is all temporal. We're all, we all live in, in a hotel, not, not an apartment, not in a house called Earth. This is a hotel. We're, we're temporal here. People don't decorate their hotel rooms, do they? They don't go out, you know, if you're gonna stay at the Holiday Inn overnight, they don't get there at five and say, I'll be back, and they go down to Ikea or Nebraska Furniture Mart, and they get all the, their favorite things and bring them into the Holiday Inn and say, this is great, I'll be gone tomorrow, but then we're gonna make this amazing That's the illustration Solomon's gonna use about stuff. There's nothing wrong with a Christian having stuff and enjoying stuff. It's when you think this brings me meaning and significance that we cross the line. And there's no remembrance of the previous or latter things. He's more specific in Ecclesiastes 12 and he says, people are gonna come to your funeral and they're gonna be sad. And then they're going to get up tomorrow and live their life without you. And it's true. And that's not even wrong. He just said, he's saying, you don't mark your meaning in life by the planet and the creation and your experience with stuff. Now, by now, you could be really discouraged. You may be trying to find an excuse not to come next week. That's exactly where Solomon wants us to be and begin. He wants us to scratch our heads and say, if that's true, then where is meaning in this world? Where is meaning on this planet? We live under the sun, which is outside of the garden and this side of heaven. We live under the sun. And the point being screamed here is that there are no ultimate answers to our ultimate questions under the sun. So where do we go from here? Well, God has done spiritual surgery on our hearts so that 
Verse 8 is the reality of our lives. Look back at verse 8 again. All things are wearisome. Man is not able to tell. Can't figure it out. Can't give a dissertation on, on what meaning is just based on this planet. The little bits of satisfaction that we taste are never enough. In fact, they only cause us to crave more. You know, I don't want to pick on golfers, but I was a golfer in previous life. I like to play golf. There's a problem with golf. It's the same problem with hunting. It's the same problem with purses or bags or whatever you want, you want to say. And that is, but let me just use golf as an illustration. Get your clubs. Get your bag. Get the golf balls. You get a glove. You get a 56-degree wedge that you like. Get your shoes and you're set. I have never met a golfer in my life who said, I will never need to go to a golf store again as long as I live. Because here's what happens. They, they're on a trip. They go into the golf store and they got this putter course. And you know, those, all those things I think are grooves so you make a hole in one every time. And you hit, hit it and it goes in. And you, oh, that's the putter. I need that. I need that. It's always I want more. And it's not just golfers. Ladies, how many bags and purses do you have? And before you get really um, arrogant and say, I don't have an issue with bags. Okay, shoes. <laughs> or blouses. Guys wear shirts. Girls wear blouses. We're going to see, especially in chapter 2, having those things is okay. Thinking that they will bring you satisfaction and meaning, you are going to stand on the trap door. It won't hold your weight. It's only God that can bring us peace and satisfaction that we need and that we're looking for. So Solomon's laying out right here at the very beginning his wisdom in this poem that explains that we are without hope and without peace, without God. Do you see that? If you're just gonna look at the creation, you're in trouble. You're not gonna find it. So do you allow your mind to consider eternal things very often as more important than temporal things? Are you seeking peace and happiness in places that are going to leave you more thirsty for them than you are now, like drinking salt water? Are you trying to stand on a trap door that cannot bear your weight? Now, before you get radical and extreme, let me just tell you part of the message of Ecclesiastes. I've already hinted at it. He doesn't say that the world and the, its offerings are so um, uh, fleeting that they can't bring you joy and, and happiness in the moment, but they can't bring meaning in the long term. We're gonna find out that if there's any pleasure on this planet that's inside the covers of the Bible, that's, that's not sinful, it ought to be enjoyed by a believer who can thank God for those things and say, what a God, and not be materialistic or hedonistic. Ecclesiastes, every single week, is going to set us up to say this. This world is not my final home. I'm going to enjoy the things on this world that, world that I can, not to a degree of selfishness or idolatry or worship, but I'm not going to cling to them so tightly, so richly and so deeply 
that I lose my purpose as a great commission missionary and Christian. Solomon sets us up to ask, do we know the deep down settled meaning of our life because we found it in Jesus Christ? Footnote. There are sections in this book that you're gonna read and you're gonna scratch your head and say, really? That's intentional. He wants us to look at the reality of the trap door. Take advantage of those moments of sobriety. God's word is not always joy and peace and happiness. Oftentimes it's saying those only exist in Christ And you'll only seek for those things after you've exhausted your attempts to find joy and peace and happiness in things that can't bear your weight. Top story, top shelf, serious thinking, and exciting when you're not trapped by this planet. There's nothing new under the sun. Nothing new. So let's learn from someone who's already been there and has this lesson for us in this book of Ecclesiastes. Father, we're humbled again by your wisdom. Give us understanding. Cause our hearts to be perplexed and crushed, even despairing when we see how much weight we put on the pleasures of this world. And give us hope and confidence in the gospel because we see how vain and full of vanities this world really is. And Lord, when we enjoy parts of your creation and your planet, make us faithful to say thank you, Lord, for your gifts, for your creativity, for your grace. We pray this because of Jesus. Amen.